We need uh, spiritual help to understand spiritual things. So let us go in front of the throne of grace and uh, ask just for that. He gives us freely what we ask for when we ask in his righteousness. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you again for your blessings, your tests, your opportunities. We thank you for your amazing word. Father, as we open it up, we continue to be fascinated by it as we go through a verse at a time and as we compare Scripture with Scripture. And Father, we are just amazed at the pictures that you bring forth to us. We are so blessed by that. May we come to a greater understanding of your plan of the ages today, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in these particular passages, this passage, uh, I can tell you uh, quickly... Uh, that the first time I taught this, a long time ago in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, I taught it wrong. And I had to go back. Uh, I'd, I'd track down word studies. I did everything possible. Two men in the field, one taken, one left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. Is this the rapture of the second advent? What is it? Well, when you start tracking down words, you start going... Huh, it's interesting the words that are used in this particular verse don't prove it one way or another. And I made the wrong decision on it. And uh, then I kept studying. That's always a good thing when you don't understand something. And even when you think you understand it, keep studying because things pop out at you. And as a result, these two verses became a, a special line in the Foundations book as we learn how to let the intermediate context also play a role in the interpretation of the immediate context. So the immediate context are the verses before and after the verse you're looking for. Intermediate include those in the same book or of the same author. And the remote context includes those of all the other books that are found. A correct interpretation will not violate any context. And that's something that we have to keep in mind. That is hermeneutics 101, if you will. How to study the Bible 101. A correct interpretation of any verse won't violate any of those three contexts. So as we read from 2437, remember, for the coming of the Son of the Man will be just like the days of Noah. We looked at that last week. And we did some comparison. For in those days... Before the flood, this is the generation of Noah, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now these are the birth pangs that Jesus has described earlier in the Olivet Discourse. And so there has a, there is an application to the church age that is here. But remember what, the, what question he was asked back recorded in early part of Matthew 24, early part of Luke 21. Tell us what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age. Now the end of the age to the disciples is the age of Israel. 
When is it going to happen? Because he said not one stone be left on top of another. He's giving them prophecies. And they're trying to fit them together in their theological grid to understand how they, are, how they work. And so he's answering the questions. And he starts giving the signs. And the sign we just went through is the parable of the fig tree. Now, the parable of the fig tree, some, some hermeneutics, many hermeneutics, say don't build a doctrine off a parable. True statement. No arguments with that. Don't build a doctrine off a parable. But parables to teach doctrine. So you build what the parable teaches are things that are taught elsewhere. And so if you have understand the parable properly, the spiritual applications are taught elsewhere, which we showed as we went through that parable. The, the fig trees identified in Hosea 9.10 as the Exodus conquest generation. We're able to identify who they are and what they are doing. A parable is a comparison, quite clearly, just like as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Now, it says it's going to get really bad. But what happened, it got really bad before the flood. I've just been back through Genesis 6 through 8 again, actually all the way through 1 through 11 this last week. And I go back in there and I start reading the early part of Genesis 6 and it has all men's thoughts were only evil continually. Why did the flood come? Because God said that it's time to clean the earth out. I will erase, literally is what he said, everything that I put on the earth. I'm going to save eight people. That's what he said, and it's said, and it's recorded many times. So that's what he's getting ready to do, and what does he do first? There's an interesting thing about catastrophes. He delivers the righteous before the catastrophe hits. Happened with the flood, didn't it? Happened with Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't it? With Lot, when he took him and his family out of there, he delivers the righteous and renders the judgment. We are promised in the church that we're not going to undergo his wrath. Okay? Very clear promise found in 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, 5, 11, multiple other passages. We are not going to go through the wrath of God. It's interesting that every position on the rapture, second advent, whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, split rapture, partial rapture, whatever it is, they all agree on one thing. We're not going to go through the wrath. All they argue about is when does the wrath start? See? So the question is not, are we going to go through the wrath? Now the wrath starts, it's recorded in Revelation 6.17 with the, the seal judgments that are there. But the seal judgments are open one right after another and the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. Now it's kind of like the flood. They all entered the ark, right? And the flood came. What happened? The righteous were delivered and the rest were left. For what? Judgment. What happened first after the flood? It started to rain. It rained a lot for 40 days and 40 nights. We know there was a canopy. It, prior to the flood, it precipitated out. It brought rain on the earth. They'd never seen rain. They didn't know what it was. But those first few days were probably fun. The water just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper then it got to be oh, what are we going to do now and it wasn't nearly as fun and then the wrath came and wiped it all away what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah same thing he pulled a lot out and he totally destroyed it instantly 
What happens frequently when the Lord renders judgment? He pulls out the righteous and he leaves the uh, wicked for judgment. That's what he does. Now, as we understand that, it helps us to put together this passage. Two men will be in the field. What is he talking about here in this particular passage? And what has been the context? Because the Lord's not really been dealing with the rapture. This days of Noah is a lead up to the second advent when he really uncorks on all of mankind. The whole tribulation period, 2,520 days, is loaded with, with judgments we can't imagine. You know, we see movies about meteors hitting the earth and stars falling out of heaven and all that. And of course, mankind and all of its intellect and ingenuity figures out a way to survive. I think the most ridiculous one, I, th I think it was 2012, was the one that they did where they, uh, they handpicked some people to go and repopulate the new earth. And then they loaded them all up onto giant ships made by the Chinese. <laughs> I was really looking for that movie to be a little better than that. Of course, that's when uh, the, was it, the Aztec calendar ended, 12, 21, 12, or something like that, and it was all supposed to, <laughs> it was all supposed to be prophetic, the world was supposed to end, and all this other stuff, and somehow mankind saved itself by means of big ships. I think they turned those into tankers for Walmart, and that's what they're using them for now, but anyway... Um, so what does this passage go with? There will be two in the field, one taken, one left. What's, what questions the Lord asking and answering? The end of the age. Now when I first taught this, I taught this as the rapture. That's, that was the mistake I made. And I'll show you why here. Because as we go to this, and you'll get in here to the... Uh, if I can find my notes again... There's only a couple of points here. At the end of the age of Israel, the wicked will be taken out from among the righteous. Where do we find this? Same writer earlier taught by Jesus concerning this time. So when you're going to compare prophecy, you have to find puzzle pieces that look alike. Okay? There are different things that happen at the rapture. They're two totally different events. At the rapture, the righteous are taken out, the wicked are left. These two things are portrayed in, in the end of Revelation 14 with the two harvests. The righteous are taken out, the wicked are left, and discipline occurs. When the second advent happens, there is going to be a taking out of the wicked and a leaving of the righteous to inherit the eternal, or not the eternal, but the millennial kingdom of God. It will be established on this earth. Now, <clears throat> this is the prime example of the intermediate context. The reason, one reason, I can say clearly that I made the mistake whenever I taught it in the 1980s a long time ago, was that I was teaching through the Gospel of Mark, as I remember, and I hit Mark 13, which is our Olivet Discourse. I went horizontal to Matthew 24 and Luke 21, which are the parallel passages. So I'm teaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, and then when I hit Mark 13, I go this way. Well, see, 
What needs to be done is you teach verse by verse through all of them. When you teach verse by verse through all of them, then you have the context, the clear context of all of the three Gospels that are there. Had I been teaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, then I would have read this verse earlier. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers and the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. End of what age? Age of Israel. What are they going to do? Angels are going to take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the end of the age, what is the context here? What's happening at the end of the age? So the correct interpretation of this has to do with the second advent. Whenever the wicked is going to be taken out. There will be wicked people survive the tribulation. There, there will. There'll be believers survived the tribulation. They were converted after the rapture. They were the ones left behind. They were the ones who were not believers in Jesus Christ at the rapture. And they became believers sometime during that seven years afterward. And they are the ones who will inherit the kingdom. There's where the 144,000 fit in. They're not Jehovah's Witnesses that are knocking on doors probably even as we speak. It's not who they're talking about. The 144,000 are, interestingly enough, Jews. You read Revelation 7, Revelation 14, you get answers to who they are. And they are 12,000 male virgin Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel except Dan. Ephraim Manasseh has their own 12,000. They're the tribe of Joseph that the double portion went to. But in any event, that's the first citizens of the millennial kingdom. And they will be ready to repopulate the earth. Obviously, there will be women who have become believers, who have survived the tribulation as well. And they will be part of the sheep and they will go in to inherit the kingdom and to repopulate the earth. We've just seen in Mark 13, 29... The kingdom of God is near even at the doors. That's the plural. Remember, there's a door of the rapture. That's the bride of Christ. That's the church. We're caught up to the Father's house, right? Revelation 4.1, a door standing open in heaven. We're there seven years. The bride prepares herself, and then we return with our groom in Revelation 19. What's he How's he coming back in Revelation 19? With a sword in his mouth. A six foot broadsword. Now it takes a man <laughs> to handle a six foot broadsword. Much less ride a horse with, <laughs> with it sticking out of his mouth. Now that's, that's a pretty tough deal. That's who the Lord is. When he comes back at the rapture, he's going to pull us out to save us. When he comes back at the second advent, he's going to defeat all of his enemies, fulfill Psalm 110, verse 1, and other passages as well. So he has two totally different 
uh, is two totally different events. It is two totally different uh, missions that he has. The second door is going to open at the second advent. We've already seen immediately after the tribulation of those days, earlier in Matthew 24. What's going to happen? The sky is going to go dark. Angels are going to go and gather together his elect from the four winds of the earth. And see, we have this from, from what? Also, Matthew 13, 49, he'll send out his angels. He will come and take out the wicked from amongst the righteous. What he's going to do, we'll keep reading. Matthew 25 will teach us about the separation of the sheep and the goats. So he's going to bring every living human being back to the area around Jerusalem. It's not going to be hard because there's not going to be that many left. But then there's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats and the sheep will inherit the kingdom. Now, <clears throat> as, we start, as we study this, to me it's fascinating to study prophecy. But we've got to ask and answer, how then should we live? So what? <laughs> I was, a long time ago I was studying a, a, a topic and back in Bartlesville once again I was studying a topic, teaching a topic. And actually, interestingly enough, is the angelic conflict. And I'm, I'm deep into the theology and how this puts together and how this fits together. And all of, one of the deacons came, came up to me in all of, all of his grace and compassion and went, So what? <laughs> what difference does this make? Well, it wasn't Jimmy, by the way. It was, a, it was another one. What difference does this make? Ah, good question. <laughs> How then shall we live? And that's why you got the last chapter in the book back there. Because how then shall we live? Because the angelic conflict with all of its ins and outs and everything else boils down to you and I today loving God, right? When we don't understand what's going on, when we think things have gone. For the angelic conflict for me today, can I love God in the middle of all this and love my neighbors myself? That. See, that's the bottom line. That's what we have to consider. Now, what are the applications to the generation of Christ's return? Because we know the rapture and second advent are only separated by seven years. These are actually shortened years. And um, interestingly enough, they're based on 30-day months. Which interestingly enough was the way that months were calculated during the time of Noah at the flood. Interesting. You can track, you got to track the chronology to go through it, but they were 30-day months is the way Noah calculated the time frame. And what is the application? And uh, this word coming, not to those only, but to all who have loved his appearing or his coming. That's, that's an interesting statement. What is his coming about? Because his coming deals with the first advent. Okay? Loving the fact that Messiah became man, took our place on a cross, and we love that. His coming is also used to refer to the rapture. When he comes back and pulls the righteous out and leaves the wicked. It is also used to refer to the second advent when he comes out and he, and he eliminates all of his enemies. So this is simply putting together some very simple principles that the Bible teaches us. What to be ready for. And at his coming, what, what should we do? How do we prepare for it? First of all, 
It's an invitation. If a person is not a believer, they need to become one. Because if they read the book of Revelation, it should scare the bejeebers out of them. It really should. And I hope it does. Because a smart question, a wise question would be, how do I escape this? An unwise answer is, we find a cave in the Rockies. And we go stock up and take all of our beans and rice and bullets and everything else with us. And we find a place to escape the coming wrath. Well, first of all, if you're on earth, you can't. <laughs> you're going to be right in the middle of it. If you do escape, it's only by the grace of God. And you better believe that you better believe in Christ. Otherwise, the end is not going to be what you're hoping for. The survivalists that, um, that are all preparing... For this, this time of the end of the world. If they're an unbeliever, you prepare all you want to prepare. But it's not going to help. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 24. says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the first fruit. First fruit, resurrection from the dead. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. That's us. We are the bride. We are believers. Those who are Christ at his coming. So our resurrection is going to be the second in the line of sequence of what Revelation calls the first resurrection. The second resurrection is to the lake of fire. The first resurrection has four parts. The first one being Christ himself. The second one being the church. The third one being the saints of the Old Testament, age of Israel, Noah, Daniel, all those guys at the second advent. And the last resurrection at the end of the millennium. If we were to go on through this, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers up all rule and authority to the Father. What's he talking about? The end of the age of Israel. Once again, what happens? He destroys all the, all the enemies. Psalm 110.1, that's what he does. He takes them out and establishes the millennial kingdom and millennial throne. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, that covers the end of the millennium. Because there will be people like you and I, just as goofy as you and I, that end up in the millennial kingdom. And they will reproduce and they will have children. They won't be in resurrection body. Because once you get resurrection body, you're not going to reproduce and have children. You'll be like the angels in heaven, not marrying or giving in marriage. None of that's going to happen. But there will be people on earth, human earth dwellers, as some people call them, and they, they will die. They will, their time of life will be extended like pre-flood. The, the Bible shows that and proves that pretty easily. But some will still die. That will happen. The last enemy abolished is death. So at the end of the millennial kingdom, after the defeat of Satan, is the final resurrection that is known as the first resurrection. So, you want to you handle this last generation? Become a disciple. To be a disciple means to be a student. 
It means that we spend time studying His Word, spend time in prayer, we spend time serving Him. We don't spend time in fear. We've got some signs gone up in our neighborhood. I'm not quite sure which church put them out or what they are, but it, it says, Faith, not fear. Real simple sign. Faith, not fear. Well, I don't know what they were about. I don't know if it's about vaccines or anything. I don't care. What it is is faith, not fear. That's the message that we need to have. Become one of his disciples. Lead others to Christ. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 19 and 20. You're going to see a pattern with these, with these points here about applications to us. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 Paul says, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Notice it's a, who is our hope? He says, is it not even you? The Thessalonian church was his hope and joy and crown of exultation. I don't think this is another crown that we can possibly gain, like the crown of righteousness, crown of uh, glory, I don't, or crown of life. I don't think it's one of those type of crowns. I think what Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica, I don't really need those other crowns because I've got you. Because you're the crown. What? Joy, exaltation. Is it not even you... In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. Ah, the fact that other people within the body of Christ, within the local church that you're a part of, they're there with, at the rapture. Isn't that a joy? Shouldn't that be enough for us? I think eternal rewards are basically put in for the adolescent believer to keep them from getting arrogant and stop serving. Because it, we need a little bit more after we think we know it all. We need a little bit more to keep us motivated. And then I think when we finally grow up, we, if we really understood what Christ did for us on a cross, we wouldn't need anything else beyond, beyond heaven. Why would we need anything else? But we're going to throw those crowns at, at his feet, Revelation 4 and 5, anyway. So it'd be nice to have a crown to throw at his feet. Now that's a good thing. But if, if it's not about the crowns, it's about the service. Lead others to Christ, because that's what Paul did with the church at Thessalonica. <clears throat> he says, you are our glory and joy. Uh, I, I love that. Huh? You have to go to Acts 17 to find out how Thessalonica was even set up. And you go to Acts 17 and you find out that Paul spent three Sabbaths in the synagogue reasoning from the scriptures to them. And out of that three Sabbaths, you know what he did? He got people mad at him. He chased him. He, he got run out of town on a rail in Thessalonica. Chased him all the way to Berea trying to find him to, to kill him. This is the religious Jews that were there. But what was left was a church. They became a model church. Enough people converted to Christianity and Paul's three Sabbaths there, reasoning with them from the scriptures, that they established a church that we know is a model church. A model church because they had faith, hope, and love. Didn't have a building, didn't have a structure to speak of, but what did they have? The stuff that really counted. Ah, application, lead other people to Christ. 
We've got gospel coins back there that are door openers. We've got tracks back there on the back table that you can use. A lot of things. Just uh, dare to ask the Lord, how can I use these this week? And take some with you. <laughs> and, and he will. Another one is seek to be experientially holy. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Interesting, we find a lot of these in, Thess in the first letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3.11. Seek to be experientially holy. It says, Now may our God and Father himself... And Jesus our Lord, direct our way to you. Paul wants to come back and see this model church in person, face to face, that he established. He says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. He's one, this is one of the few churches, he said, when I talk about love for one another, I don't really need to write to you. Because you got it. You're doing a good job. But so what does he pray? Does he say they've arrived? He says, no, increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. Interesting he threw that in there. Just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts, the innermost parts of our being, then out of which comes murders, adulteries, fornications. Jesus said out of the heart of man come all this bad stuff. But he says that he may establish the innermost part of your being here without blame in holiness before our God and Father when at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, is he talking about the second advent or the rapture? He's talking about the rapture to the Thessalonian church. Not the second advent. Because the next great prophetic event for the church is the rapture. That's the one to look forward to. How do we know that? Because the rapture is brought up in chapter 4. Which says to comfort those who face loss. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 to 18. I know every one of us in here have faced loss. Loss of a loved one, somewhere along the line. Loss of parents. We have faced loss. And there is a time for joy and a time for peace. And there is a balanced way to do it. And what, what Paul writes about in chapter 4, he's writing to a church, 50-51 AD. Church age has been in existence for 17, 18 years now. Day of Pentecost happened around 33. And they have people who are believers who have died physically. And that everybody seemed to think Jesus was coming back right away. And he wasn't coming back right away. So what about all these people who have died? They passed on physically. They, this is a question the church had. And Paul writes to answer it. And he says, we do not want you to be uninformed brethren. The correct word is ignorant. But it's hard to use. That's not a politically correct term to use anymore. But <clears throat> so it, they translated it uninformed brethren. About those who are asleep. So that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. Now if we track this down a little bit farther and if we were to go through the first verses of 1 Thessalonians 5, we find out there are 
two words in here that trans translators translated as sleep. One in chapter 4 and one in chapter 5. Now, this word is about uh, a believer who has passed away, and it clearly refers to physical death. They've undergone that. The other word, gregoreo, is a word that's used in the next chapter, and it's about being spiritually asleep, spiritually out to lunch. You just, but they translated them both as asleep, but they have two totally different meanings. He says, <coughs> For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now when's this event going to happen? If we believe that he died and rose again. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I, I love that passage. The dead in Christ will rise first. This is presented as clearly as you can present it in the Greek as a sequence of events. Not something that is, that is going to happen simultaneously. I don't think it will be far apart. But it says the dead in Christ will rise first then. Notice that sequence. We who are alive and remain will be raptured. That's our word, harpazo in the Greek. It's a word translated by repere in the Latin. And that's where the word rapture comes from. We'll be snatched out of here. That's a word that means to take by force. We'll be caught up. You're not, when the rapture happens, you're not going to say, can, can you wait just a few minutes? I've got something else that I've got to do. And the answer to that is, no, leave the goal behind. It's not going to matter anyway. <laughs> you know, it's a, well, this said, look at what this says. Caught up together with them, them as the dead in Christ, in the clouds. See, when the Lord comes back at the second advent, what did we just read in Olivet Discourse? He sets foot on the Mount of Olives. Not caught up to meet him in the clouds. Whenever the rapture happens, we go this way. When the second advent happens, we're with him coming this way. Two totally different events portrayed by that chart uh, actually quite well. The first arrow on the left side there that you see, the rapture, we meet him in the clouds of the sky. Okay? And then on the right side, that big arrow over there says second advent. That is whenever he sets foot on earth. And we're with him. We're the armies in heaven. We're the bride in Christ. We are coming back with him. And that's where he's going to defeat all of, his, all of his enemies. He says, And so we shall always be with the Lord. Now if you put this together with John 14, what's he going to do? He's going to take us to daddy's house. I go to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come again. I'm going to bring you to myself that where I am, there you may always be. So what's he going to do with the church? When he comes gets us, he's taking us to daddy's house. What do they do in the ancient world for wedding ceremonies? What do they do in a lot of places in the world now? The groom goes to get the bride, brings the bride back to his father's house to prepare. Oftentimes it takes 
a week. Isn't that interesting for the preparation? <laughs> so how long are we going to be there? A week of years, seven years, before the actual wedding of the Lamb. Chapter 19, first five verses is that passage. Now what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to write books and get rich about this? The whole intent of this passage, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. So when someone is a believer and they pass and doing a, a service, there's an honest time of grief. There will be a time of loss, a time that you miss them. That's honest. There's no problem with having or showing grief. Grief. It is not a misapplication of doctrine to have any grief like some people seem to think it is. Actually, Joseph grieved for his father Jacob for 40 days. So if you go back to the Old Testament, Joseph was a pretty good straight believer and he grieved for Jacob. So it, it says don't grieve as those who have no hope. That's what Jesus got on Mary and Martha about over their brother Lazarus. Because what he was watching and why Jesus wept were people grieving is they had no hope. Huh. But boy, when you're a believer in Christ, you got all the hope you need, right? So there's a balance there. Comfort one another with these words. Yes, there will be a sense of loss, but it's not a forever loss. And that is the balance. That's what God brings to our lives. What is the next application? Be entirely blameless in your spirit, soul, and body. <clears throat> now, we are trichotomous. That means there's three parts to us. As Christians, we are trichotomous. We have a body. Uh, we usually like it less the older we get, and it doesn't work quite as well. But we still have a body. We have a soul. This soul is the immaterial part of us. The soul has got emotions on the inside of the soul. The soul has got, got uh, vocabulary and categories. It has the analysis center on the inside where you take the information that you've learned and you put it together and make a decision. That's where the volition is located. Somewhere inside this immaterial part of man. Uh, it's interesting, neurologists can't find it. They don't know where it is. They can't put a chemical thing on it. Uh, they're, they're trying, uh, some neurology uh, people are actually trying to say that they, they become atheists along the way and evolutionists along the way. And they're trying to, to say that these near-death experiences, end-of-death, end-of-life experiences, is just a whole bunch of neurological junk that's going on up there in your brain that brings all this about. And I don't really think so. There's a part of man that they cannot locate, find, and chart out in, in, the, in the brain. And he says, may the God of peace himself, closing words of 1 Thessalonians, sanctify you entirely, make you holy, let you live this life that you are called to live. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. This is the only verse in the New Testament that puts all three of those together. Body, soul, and spirit. Body and soul you find in a lot of places. Spirit you find referred to. This verse puts them all together. Your body, soul, and spirit complete. 
mature is what it means, grown up, finished, without blame, when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we get ready for His return? Let us be found without blame. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will also bring it to pass. You know when that trumpet sounds and we are changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye? You know, uh, we're going to be made complete then. Until then, we're a work in progress. But he's the one going to make us complete. Believe the fact that as a believer, you're not going to be left behind. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Now the model church let some false teacher in with a teaching about the, the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord. They let some false teacher in. There was a letter circulating and they bought into it. So Paul writes 2 Thessalonians to correct this mistake. 1 Thessalonians, he commends them on their faith, hope, and love. 2 Thessalonians, he commends them on their faith and their love but not their hope. Ah, why? Because their hope had been shaken. It had been shaken. So he's writing 2 Thessalonians to reestablish their hope. Because hope is faith about the future. That's what it is. It, in uh, the biblical word, the Greek word, is a confident expectation, not wishful thinking. So, 2 Thessalonians 2, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now, what's the context? What's Paul talking about? Our church gathering together to him, rapture that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, has arrived. Parousia has come alongside. Now that's, that's comforting to know. Because if you're looking for the Lord to, turn, to come back and, uh, and a whole lot of people disappear... <laughs> Well, then you might be concerned because you didn't make it. But if you're looking for the Lord to come back and then you get some kind of message or some kind of prophet or some kind of false prophet and he says, no, he's already come and gone. That could shake you up a little bit. He says, don't be panicked. If we were to go on, almost getting pushed to read 1 Thessalonians 5, but it talks about whether we are awake or asleep. When he comes back, when that trumpet sounds, when it's time to bring his bride to him, to his father's house. It says whether you're awake or asleep, spiritually asleep. Because there will be people who are believers. And when the trumpet sounds, the rapture happens, they'll go. They'll go. See, there's a whole other line of thought that you have to be worthy to go. Well, how are you worthy to go? Usually they translate that into tithing. If you want to be worthy to go, then you have to tithe. You have to do this with the church, that with the church. You have to have this whole bunch of fruit that we can expect and say that you're ready to go. And what the Lord says is you need to be... What did 1 Thessalonians 4 just say? If we believe that Jesus died and rose again. What's the content of the gospel? If we believe that, he's going to take us out of here. Now, again, believers can fall asleep at the switch 
and frequently do, and it will be a marker of the last days. But it doesn't mean they're going to be left behind at all. Now, <clears throat> look forward to the victory over Satan. Do you see the inroads he's made in this world today? Quest for fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. That particular quest is, is uh, running the world, it seems like, isn't it? Totally running the world. People want to be known and famous. And Are you guys hot or is it just me? Some are, some ain't. Can we just have just a touch of that one? <laughs> I'm still drinking coffee, so that's why I want to <laughs> be sure that, that uh, that's, that's not it. You know, the old devil is alive and well on planet Earth. A guy named Hal Lindsey wrote a book about that a long, long time ago. And you know, the old devil is still alive and well on planet Earth. He hit that one right, right on the head. Now, look forward to the victory. Won't it be nice whenever righteousness will reign supreme? Won't it be a great time in history whenever the Lord is seated on the throne in Jerusalem? Won't it be a great time in history for us? We'll have a new body and we can no longer sin. Will we still be free with volition? Yeah. We'll just never choose to sin again. That's hard for us to fathom on this side of eternity. But look forward to the victory over Satan. Paul keeps on writing, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, Then that lawless one will be revealed. He talks about, he says in verse 3, I should have gone there. Andy Woods wrote a great book about, about uh, the falling away, which is... Uh, the uh, last generation it says the day of the Lord won't come unless the falling away happens first it's actually a word that means departure the departures I believe I, I believe Andy hit it right on the head it is a word that means the departure of us it means to go from one place to another place it's not the falling away of, of the great apostasy of the last days, but what it is, is the departure at the, at the rapture. And then he starts telling us more about what's going to happen during the tribulation, writing the Thessalonian church. As you're studying prophecy, you have to take prophetic passages, study those passages, and then put them together. It's the only way that, that you can do it says, then that lawless one will be revealed. This is the man of lawlessness who will uh, be revealed, who has taken his seat in the temple of God and proclaimed himself to be a God. Okay, that's the Antichrist. He's moved into the uh, temple and he has proclaimed himself to be a God. And he says, he'll be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Hey, when's he going to bring him to an end? Second advent. He's going to lock him up for a thousand years. That's one end. And the final end, he'll let him out of prison for a little while. And he'll lead the Gog-Magog rebellion. That's tucked away in Revelation 20. Long about verse 4 to 6, right in, in that area. And he says, 
He will bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one who's, who is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Now, this Antichrist, when is he going to end? He's going to be cast into the lake of fire, never to exit he and the false prophet. That's going to happen at the second advent. We sing that song, A Mighty Fortress. You know the verse, One little word shall fell him comes out of passages like these. Because whenever the Lord comes back and defeats all of his enemies, he calls fire down out of heaven and defeats the king of the north. He enters hand-to-hand -hand combat with the kings of the east and defeats them. But how does he defeat the Antichrist? In, in Armageddon. One word. That's all it takes. Fitting punishment, isn't it, for big mouth? One word. That's all it takes. Doesn't take a lot of words for the Lord to win. He's already done it. Look forward to that. That'll be nice when he is no longer around to make accusations of believers. He's no longer around to harm believers. James 5 takes us to our next point. Strengthen your heart. Strengthen your heart from James 5. What do we do? We know the Lord in Mark 7 says, Out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries. And he gives a big list of what goes on on the inside of us. James 5, Be patient, brethren, till the coming of the Lord. See this little phrase? Till the coming of the Lord. The, the Lord is giving us applications that we're supposed to apply until that time he comes back. Be patient, brethren. Now we've all in that and prayed for patience and it's hard <laughs> the, the best thing is if you find yourself being patient not when you try to bring it about out of your own energy <laughs> when you find boy I'm patient about that I don't care if they cut me off and took my parking space that's fine I'll find another one and we, we, we learn to adapt and it says be patient therefore till the coming of the Lord Say the farmer waits for the pre precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. The agricultural analogy. When you plant something, you don't eat from it the next day. It's not the way it works. You have to be patient about it. You too be patient. And then it says, strengthen your hearts. How do you do that? On Christ the solid rock I stand, right? All other ground is sinking sand. Made alive in Christ. Wow. So we, we have our feet on the rock. He says, strengthen your hearts. And then he says, why? For the coming of the Lord is near. James wrote this. First book of the New Testament. And it didn't seem to be very near, did it? But what it does is draw near by means of more information because he's just told us about the rich of the last days. And they're going to be super rich, super greedy. They will withhold the pay of the laborers that they are using. It gives us descriptions of the greedy of the last days. It says, <clears throat> For the coming of the Lord is near. And then he gives an application about patience. Do not complain, brethren against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged 
Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Strengthen your heart. Be thankful for the first advent. 2 Peter 1.16 For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses of his majesty. He's, Peter's talking about when the Lord first showed up. We didn't follow any mythology or anything else. We were eyewitnesses of who he was. We were with him for three years. And he says, we weren't fooled by it at all. We made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses. Be thankful for the first advent. It's so easy to get our eyes on the second advent and coming back we lose sight of the first advent. And that's what the Lord's table does. It will celebrate next, next weekend. The Lord's table takes us back and forward. It says, take a good look back at the cross and be thankful for it. He said, keep on doing this in remembrance of me. Remember who, who he is. Remember what he has done. And remember, and he says, do this until he returns. It takes us to the first advent and the second advent right there in the Lord's table. It is our, our twofold purpose. Always look back with appreciation. Beware of misleading information about his return. From 2 Peter chapter 3, In the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? You know anybody doing that today? Even Christians are falling prey to that. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's evolutionary thought. It continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What has gotten into the church? Evolutionary thought. It is an anti-God mindset. And it says, For when they maintain it, this, it escapes their notice, that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. It's not hard to figure out. He's talking about the flood. What we see now was formed by the flood through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water in case we missed it. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire and kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So beware when these people come along. There was a former uh, Baptist pre-trib uh, pastor used to be a big part of pre-trib and everything and he just got tired of waiting and he basically said well this is all it had to be allegory it had to be a figure of speech and so now he's writing books trying to debunk the pre-trib rapture position of the church because he say well he didn't come back when I thought he was going to come back so therefore he's mad at him I guess and he's going to straighten all this out Urgently seek to become like him, 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. The day of God, see, is that which takes place when? Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. There is the day of the Lord and that will take us all the way through to the time that the heavens and earth are destroyed and then we enter the day of God.
What do we know about that? Not a lot. What will we get to know about it? Everything. It's something to look forward to. Seek to stand before him without shame. 1 John 2.28, the last, the last uh, and an important warning. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears. We had a conversation last week about abide. Abide means to make it your life. Make it your life. Abide where? In him. You're in Christ Jesus only by his grace. So that when he appears, we may, be, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame and his coming. Are we ready for that trumpet? Is our life geared to him? The last point is be alert and be on guard. In these passages, Luke 21, that's still in our Olivet Discourse. We're picking up the context next week. And we're going to explore what it means to be alert, which is the opposite of spiritually asleep. It's a word that means spiritually awake. Be awake spiritually and on guard. Be alert and on guard. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your grace, your mercy, your love, all your blessings, all your tests. Thank you, Father, for the confidence that we have that your word is indeed truth. And when you say something, it is going to happen. May our hope indeed be in that. Let it be built on nothing less than your love and righteousness. I thank you, Father, for this time that we've had together. Please help us to remember it. Please help us to use this information wisely. And Father, please let us be open to others who need to hear the good news of the message of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.